0: We're going to be in John 7. We didn't plan any of this, but Jesus just speaks really directly into, I think, what we just got to taste of. And so John 7, if you'll open up with me, Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible there in front of you. We're going to be on page 893 in those Bibles and uh, looking at the second half of of John chapter 7 to to, to really dig into uh, this passage. When I was a kid, uh, really, really young, like four or five years old, Uh, I didn't see well and so my parents started realizing really early that I had some vision problems and wasn't seeing real well And so they took me to the eye doctor as a four or five year old and I got a prescription for these really thick glasses. So I was that kid who as a four or five year old got these huge glasses and my parents have all these really embarrassing pictures of me and I tried to I tried to go through their house and get rid of them all but I'm sure there's still some out there somewhere that they can hold over my head. But I was that kid really from uh, four or five years old till about the third grade I was the kid with the huge glasses Uh, trying to see. And about the third grade, uh, my parents uh, got a phone call from my third grade teacher. My third grade teacher just called my parents and told my my parents, something's wrong with Kyle. And they knew that, but something's wrong with the way he's learning, with the way he's seeing. We're just really concerned about what's going on with him. Would you come and meet with us? And so my parents came to the school, and and I still remember this. I still remember that my parents were going to meet with a teacher, and that being every little kid's nightmare. I didn't know what I had done or what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong and, and that the teacher wanted to meet with my parents. And so I, I don't know how your grade school works, but in my school, uh, they, they divided us up into reading groups. Uh, there were three groups. They had the fast kids in one group. They had the average kids in another group, and then they had the really slow kids in another group. And, and my school, I, I don't know if they thought they were being sneaky about it, but they decided that they would name the reading groups animals that related to how fast the kids could read. And so I might have been a slow reader, but I picked up on that pretty quick, that I was in the slow group. The, the fast kids were like the Jaguars, and they would go in their room and read really fast, and there were the average group of kids who were like the lions or the the bears, still a a ferocious animal, but just not as fast. So there were the bears, and then I was in this group, and I don't remember what we were called, but it was like the turtles or the, the wallabies or something that just didn't imply speed at all. And so, like I said, I couldn't read that well, but I could pick up pretty quickly. I was in the slow group, and not only was I in the slow group, I was like lagging way behind the rest of the wallabies in my class. And so my, my parents came in and, and my teacher just said, hey, we, we think something's wrong with the way Kyle's seeing. Uh, we've we sat with him, we've, we've looked at what he's trying to read. We just don't think he's seeing the pages that well. So taking him back to the eye doctor. And so as a third grader, keep in mind, I've been, I've been wearing these glasses for three years. I, I go back to the eye doctor and, and actually went to a different eye doctor. And they ran all these tests on me. They dilated my eyes. They, they checked everything out. And they realized that they had me in the wrong prescription. And, and not just like a few degrees off or a few, a few, whatever you call them, I'm not an optometrist, but not just, they had the prescription wrong, um, I'm actually very, very farsighted, and they put me in a prescription for being nearsighted. So every time I put my glasses on, it was actually making things way worse, and uh, I remember getting headaches and things being blurry, but as a third grader, having no idea that this isn't the way everybody else sees things. So as a third grader, I remember getting a new pair of glasses, and I, I still look just as dorky, but I remember being able to look and, and actually see letters and words. Like, I I remember that clearly like I remember hearing about letters and words and then being able to actually look at the paper and all of a sudden all these things everybody else was talking about made sense. I was like, okay, this is a letter. This this is a word. This is a sentence and then man, I just started dominating the wallabies. Like I was way out in front. I was reading really fast. I was I was you know showing I, I never made it to the, the second group, but I dominated the wallabies there for the rest <laughs> of third grade. See as I, as I re- think about my story, I remember that I I had always known that something was wrong, but I didn't know how to express it. I had always known there's something wrong, something doesn't make sense, but I was a third grader. I'd never seen clearly, so I didn't know how to express that, because I'd never seen the way I was supposed to see. I I didn't have the words to express what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong, and I didn't know what to do about it, and what I want to talk about tonight, and really what I want to let Jesus talk about tonight, is I think the same thing is true for many of us spiritually, we, we know something is wrong, but we don't know how to express it in words. We know something at a soul level is wrong. Something is off, but we don't know how to say it. We can't find the words to express it. There's, there's just this deep restlessness in our souls. There's just this, this deep feeling of emptiness and pain and confusion that we just don't know how to express. That was me in college, and and I'm assuming for many of you, when it comes to your relationship with God, you've always known that something is off, something is wrong, but you haven't had the words to be able to figure out how to express that. You're like me in third grade, knowing something is wrong, but having no idea what it is and and how to express it. And so I I love this text in John chapter 7 that we're going to look at tonight, because Jesus, as as Terrell introduced us last week, Jesus is going to give us a diagnosis and a cure. Jesus is going to take us in. He's going to help us understand what is this feeling that I've always dealt with. Why do I feel empty, and why do I feel guilty, and why do I feel just at the deepest level of my soul's just this restlessness that won't go away? What is that? And what I want to do is to just let Jesus uh, diagnose this problem for us, and then he's going to tell us, here's the cure. Here's what will change everything for us. And so here's what I want to do as we start. I want to just pray for us. So if you don't mind bowing your head and closing your eyes, I just want to pray that, that God will just continue to speak to us tonight and continue to, to open our eyes where they need to be opened. God, we invite you to speak tonight. We, we invite you uh, to, to come into this room, and Lord, just to continue to, to speak to us. I thank you for being a God who loves to talk to his kids. You delight to speak. You delight to reveal yourself to your sons and daughters. So we ask that you will do that tonight. All around this room, I just want to ask for you, if, if you understand what I'm talking about, if, if when I say that my, my soul is restless, if, if you know what I'm talking about, I want to ask you just to slip your hand up, and I'm going to pray for you. I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. No one's going to look. I just want you to raise your hand up. If you have these deep feelings of guilt and pain, and, and you're not really sure what they are, just slip up your hands all around the room. I just want to pray for you. God, you see the hands in this room tonight. And even more than that, you see the hearts of those who are holding their hands up and some who aren't, that have just struggled with this, this, this lifelong understanding that something's wrong, that something at the deepest level of their soul isn't lining up and not knowing what. So, Father, we thank you that nothing is hidden from you. We thank you that, that you know our hearts. And so, so, Father, I just pray, will you speak to us tonight? Will you open our hearts to understand and accept what you have to teach us? And especially for those who raise their hands, will you speak Will you help them to understand, maybe for the first time, who you are and what you've done and what those feelings are, that that we may have words to express what our heart is crying out for. May may you do that in us tonight. We thank you for loving us. You didn't have to create us, but you did, not to get something from us, but to share something with us. You don't have to speak to us, but you delight to. You you don't have to forgive us and give us second chances, but you delight in doing that. Thanks for loving us and for for pursuing us with your love. We want to hear from you tonight. Help us to know what to do with these feelings that our words sometimes can't express. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you will, look with me uh, verse 37 is where we're going to pick up. Verse 37. Terrell opened up chapter 7 for us last week, and Jesus is going to make a very short yet uh, one of the most powerful and amazing statements in all of Scripture. Je- Jesus is going to make just this amazing statement. Verse 37, if you'll read along with me, we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 7. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus stands up at this feast and he says, if anyone thirsts, if you're thirsty, come to me and and drink. This is one of those statements that made Jesus either God or an insane person. Just imagine someone standing up and saying this, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Drink. If there was a guy on campus who was just standing out by the fountain and said that, what would you do? You would take off. You'd get out of there, right? This is either the statement of a man who really was God or this is the statement of an insane person. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either Lord or lunatic or liar. He can't be a good teacher and make claims like this. That if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There's this amazing statement that Jesus makes. And so I, I want to dig into the statement tonight. We're going to spend quite a bit of time just working through that phrase by phrase and seeing the fullness of what Jesus said. But really to understand uh, the fullness of it, you need to understand when and where Jesus said this. But when in time it was and, and where he was when he said it. You need to see the surroundings, the background of this painting of when Jesus made this statement. See, it tells us in verse 37 that it was the last day of the feast, the great day. And Terrell talked a little bit last week about this being the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three great Jewish feasts that they celebrated every year. And uh, it was this week-long festival. I think someone referred to it last week as Jewish Woodstock. It was this week-long party that the, the Jewish people had. It was, uh, the, the, it was in October every year at harvest time, uh, I don't think this is a great comparison, but somewhat similar to Thanksgiving for us. It was at the harvest time that people would come together to celebrate for an entire week who, who God was and what he was doing, and uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but looking both backward and forward, they would just celebrate God's faithfulness to them. Uh, so, some of the, the conditions, every male within 15 miles of Jerusalem was expected to come. So so every male within 15 miles of Jerusalem was expected to come to Jerusalem. And the way this feast looked, they would come into Jerusalem, and each of them was to build a shelter with with the limbs of branches. So in essence, they would camp out in the city for for a week. They would camp out and build these booths, and they would live in them for a week. And so that's why it was called the Feast of of Booths. So what was the point of that? Why have all the people come to Jerusalem and live in these booths for a week. See, it was both looking back at how faithful God had been and looking forward to how faithful God would be. And so, so it looked back in Jewish history at, at how their ancestry began, that God created this people, the, the Jewish people, but that for, for 400 years they were slaves in the land of Egypt, and then finally, after 400 years of slavery, God delivered them. So, so you might remember that from, from the movies and from, from stories that God delivered the people and uh, that parted the Red Sea and the people left the land and he told them that he was going to take them to a land of their own. And then if you've read through the Old Testament, for, for the next 40 years, the people of Israel wandered around the wilderness waiting to get into the promised land. And they lived literally in these booths. They lived uh, as homeless people for 40 years. They were a nation without a land. And so the Feast of Booths looked back on that event and said, listen, this is how God has delivered us. God provided this land for us. He delivered us from slavery and brought us into a land of our own, and we never want to forget that. So on a yearly basis, they would come together in Jerusalem, and the building of these booths, the building of these shelters was to remind them, remember how faithful God was to deliver us. Remember how he brought us out of this land of Egypt and gave us a land of our own, and we never want to lose sight of that. But see, it was not only looking back to remember how God has delivered his people, the people of Israel were waiting for what they called the Messiah, that they were waiting for the one who would come and ultimately deliver them. He, he, would, he would come and he would gather all the descendants of Abraham and he would make them into this Hebrew nation. So not only did this celebration look back on how faithful God had been, but they all looked forward to the day the Messiah would come and, and Israel would, would be what it should be. Brokenness would be taken care of and sin would be atoned for. And so every year the feast was a part of this remembrance of what God was doing, what he had done and what he would do. But there, there was one part of the feast, and to understand why Jesus uses this analogy of thirst, there was one part of the feast that was especially significant. And one of the central parts of the ceremony, every day there was a, a, a basically an outpouring of water, this ceremony that would happen. And essentially what would happen each day, a, a priest would lead a parade of sorts through the streets of Jerusalem. And he would go to this place called the the Pool of Siloam and he would fill a golden goblet full of water. And he would walk back through the streets and he would walk into the temple. And when he got to the temple, he would dump the cup of water out over the altar. And he would do this every day of of the feast. It was this, this water ceremony. And as he walked, you can just picture this in your mind. As he walked, the people of Israel would be lining the streets watching this happen. And they'd be chanting a hymn based on Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 is this passage in which uh, the, the nation of Israel looks towards the Messiah. And so, so the streets would be filled with the people, and they would be singing hymns along the lines of Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And there would just be these, this singing and this celebration of the fact that the Messiah was going to come, and these, this water of salvation was going to fall upon the people. God was going to dump out salvation upon the people like water they were they were singing out oh god there's an endless supply of life and salvation to be enjoyed in you and so that would happen every day of the feast and finally on the last day the 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 priest would walk through the streets and he would do it one final time and we're told here in, in verse 37 that it was on the last day of the feast in the middle of the ceremony jesus stands up and he says these words So so this this isn't just Jesus pulling a random metaphor out of the air. This is Jesus in the middle of this ceremony that had happened for thousands of years for the Jewish people as they walked through the streets with water, going to the temple, waiting for the day that the Messiah could come. And in the middle of this ceremony, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This whole thing is about me, in other words. For, for thousands of years, your, your people have been waiting for the day that, that one would come who would fill not just the physical thirst of the people, but the spiritual thirst of the people. You see, while, while the people were in the desert, those 40 years, God provided water physically for them to drink. So, so, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through Exodus in particular, there were several times where the people ran out of water and they would grumble and they would complain to Moses. And Moses was the leader, and he would, he would try to figure out how do I provide water for all these people? And at one point, Jesus said, or God said to Moses, you need to go and get your staff and hit a rock. And when you hit a rock, water's going to fl- flow out of the, the rock. I'm going to provide water for the people physically as you strike the rock. And so Moses did it. You, you may remember that Moses goes out and he strikes this rock. And water actually comes flowing out of the, river, uh, out of the rock and meets the physical needs of the people. And what Jesus is saying when he stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's saying, listen, God met your physical needs in the desert, but I'm here to meet your spiritual needs. That, that what, what happened in the Exodus was just a sign pointing to me that not only am I here to meet physical needs, I'm here to actually meet the spiritual thirst that you have and that all people have had. So you can see now how even more the, the significance of Jesus' words, how meaningful they were. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had been taking part in this feast. They'd been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the one who would ultimately quench their thirst. And in the midst of that ceremony, on the final day, Jesus stood up and, and he loudly makes this, this claim. That, that, that uh, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. Uh, I, I want to look at Jesus' statement for a little bit. He gives us in his statement the diagnosis and then the cure and then the promise. And I want to just spend some time walking through the the words of Jesus and seeing the fullness of what he said. Verse 37 again, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is just a beautiful scene where Jesus stands up in the midst of this ceremony, in the midst of this week, and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in this statement, he gives us his his diagnosis, his cure, and his promise. See, his diagnosis is pretty simple, isn't it? You're thirsty. You're thirsty. Jesus looks at the people and he says, there's this thirst that everyone is thirsty, that we all thirst for some pretty simple things. Uh, our bodies need water in order for us to stay alive. And while Jesus is saying, your soul needs some things in order to stay alive. That there is a thirst of your soul that has to be met and has to have some essential elements to it. And so, so I want you to think about that. What does it mean that, that your soul is thirsty? What, what what does that actually mean? What are the, the parts of that that we need to work through? See, when Jesus speaks of thirst, he's using a metaphor of, of all of these. Not, not physically thirst, but spiritually our soul is, is thirsty. And, and as you begin to think through that, it, it makes sense that, that our souls are thirsty for, for certain things. That we all need acceptance and approval, right? We, we all long for and we all desire this acceptance and approval. We want someone to tell us that, that we're okay. We want someone to tell us that they accept us. We all long for that. There's no one who doesn't long for this acceptance and this approval. And that's why some of you will do anything to get people to like you. Some, some of you will, will do whatever it takes just to get acceptance and approval. It's because your soul thirsts for it. Your soul thirsts for acceptance and approval. Our, our souls thirst for success. Our souls thirst for us to be successful and, and significant and for, to have people look at us and say that we have meaning and purpose and that, that, that there's some kind of value to our lives. There's no one on the face of the earth who doesn't have that, that, that we need to, to know that we're valuable and that something in us has value. We, we thirst for success. We, we thirst for love and intimacy, don't we? This is what's behind all the relationships that you want to get into and why you ultimately want them, because at the end of the day, our souls thirst for love and intimacy, And and beyond all the physical stuff with with dating, what your soul longs for is is intimacy, which means to be completely known and completely loved. Our, Our souls long for that. For someone to know every part about me and still love me. And my soul is thirsty for that. See, our souls long for these things, for acceptance and approval and success and love and intimacy. And as you think through those, that's why so many of you have been lost and thirsty and not really been able to describe or explain what these feelings are. And Jesus is just pointing out this universal condition. He's saying, everyone is thirsty. Your your souls are are thirsty. Like like a man dying in the desert of thirst, your souls are crying out for relief. Your soul is crying out for someone to accept you. Your, Your soul is crying out for someone to know you and to love you and to tell you that you're valuable. So Jesus just gives us our diagnosis. He says, this is the diagnosis. Your souls are thirsty. Your soul is thirsty, and there's not a single person who's exempt from that you're thirsty. This is the problem of humanity. So that's our diagnosis. Our souls are thirsty. So, so what are we to do with that? What, what's the cure? And I love how Jesus says it. If anyone is thirsty, look at this invitation. Let him come to me and drink. If, if that's you, if, if you're someone who longs for acceptance and for love and for intimacy and, and for success and for value, this, this offer that Jesus makes is let him come to me and drink. I have plenty for everyone. This is an open offer to, to anyone who understands that, that they can come to me and drink. You, you need acceptance. Jesus says, come to me and drink. I, I know everything about you. I know every thought. I know every motive. I know everything that you think no one else knows about. Jesus says, I know all that. And I'm inviting you today to come to me and drink. You, you need significance. You need to feel valuable. Jesus says, come to me and drink. I, I can show you why you're valuable. I, I can show you who you are and, and what life's about. You, you need love and intimacy. You, you want to be fully known and fully loved. Jesus says, come to me and drink. I, I know everything about you, and I still love you regardless of all that you've done. See, over and over again, Jesus is saying, only I can quench that thirst. Acceptance, approval, only I, can, only I can quench that. Value and success and meaning, I'm the only one that can quench that. Approval and intimacy and love, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can quench those things. I'm, I'm the only one that can... It can quench your thirst. So what do we need to do to deal with a thirsty soul? How do we typically answer that? Uh, look at your own life. How do you deal with your thirsty soul? Most of us feel the feeling of being thirsty and don't know what to do with it, so we just keep ourselves busy. We, we decide that we're going to do more and we're going to try to find some way to quench our thirst, and so we, we go and do more and more. And Jesus says, no, don't go and do anything else. Come and drink. I'm inviting you to do something that, that doesn't, revol- doesn't involve you going and doing more. It involves you coming to me and drinking deeply of who I am and what I've done. It, it doesn't involve you impressing me. It doesn't involve you going through the right religious hoops. It involves you coming to, to me, to coming to Jesus and seeing that I'm the one that can quench your thirst, that I'm, I'm making this universal offer for you to come and, and be a part of what I've been doing. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to, to drink of Jesus what does it mean? He tells us in the next verse, whoever believes in me. See, drinking is believing. That's what this means, that, that, that to drink of Jesus just means that I, I believe in him, that, that, that only Jesus can give us what our soul longs for, only he can give us love and acceptance and forgiveness and intimacy and success and meaning, and he invites us to drink, and to drink means to believe him, to, to, to believe him, to understand who he is and what he's done to quench our thirst." And so let's just walk through this again. Our our thirst for acceptance is met when we believe in Christ. Your thirst for acceptance and your thirst for approval is met completely when you believe in Jesus Christ. Because what believing in Jesus Christ is, is me going before Jesus saying, listen, God, I'm a sinner. And, And it's not just that I've done some bad things, it's that my heart is rebellious and wicked and has done everything it can to push you out. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, listen, I know and I accept you. I, I know the darkest parts of your heart. I know the darkest parts of your past. I know the darkest parts of your present, even the things you think no one else knows about. I know the darkest parts of your future, and I accept you and I approve of you anyway. That, that your, your thirst is quenched by believing. Your thirst for success and significance is met when you believe. We, we no longer have to, to drive ourselves to be successful because Christ has been successful in our place. He says you're free to fail because I've been successful. You're free to, to, to fail because Christ went to the cross and, and showed us what it looked like to be ultimately obedient and righteous. Our, our thirst for intimacy and love is fully met when we believe we, we have a God who fully knows us and still fully loves us. So, so we're not hiding anything from him to trick us into loving us like we do with a lot of other people. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Come, come be a part of who, of who I am. Take what I've offered to you and, and drink deeply. And then I love that, that after he makes the diagnosis and he, after he tells us the cure, he gives us his promise. And look at what he says. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I, I love that. Do you, do you catch what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you come to me, I'm not going to give you a little, uh, a little Dixie cup of water. He says, if you come to me, I'm going to quench your thirst. I'm going to turn you into a river. If you come to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet your, deeds, your needs so deeply that in turn, you're going to meet the needs of others. I'm going to accept you so much that you're going to now offer love to those who feel unacceptable. I'm going to show you intimacy in such a way that now you're going to be able to go to those and say, listen, no matter what you tell me, there's nothing you can tell me that will make you, me stop loving you. You're, you're going to find value and you're going to teach others what their value is. See, have you ever been around people that you can just feel life flowing out of? Have you ever experienced that? There's a few people that I've been around that I just get around them and I just feel life just flowing out of them. And I think it's the exact application of this verse that God says there are some people that I go to work in and you just feel that these rivers of living water flowing out of them. That everything they see and everything that they do just breathes life into my life. And this is what life's all about. That, that God will take us and, and meet our needs and use us to meet the needs of others so that living water flow from us that we may meet the needs of those who still haven't found Christ. And so, so I love these two verses. Jesus looks at the human condition and in two sentences, he just summarizes it all so well. He says, you're thirsty. Your souls are thirsty. Your souls are, are crying out for things that your soul should cry out for and come to me and drink. This offer that, that is unconditional, come to me and drink. You're invited regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done or what you haven't done. You're, you're invited to come to me and drink, to believe in me and, and let me meet all your needs then there's this promise that, that I, I promise i'll do so much more than just meet your needs i'm going to give you a drink and i'm going to turn you into a river i'm going to let life flow through you this is the diagnosis the cure and the promise of jesus uh, look, look at verse 39 real quick I, I love that john in the midst of his gospel he puts some stuff like this in to let us know that they had no idea what jesus was talking about when he said it so look at verse 39 john, this is just kind of a side note from john and john says now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, so what's going on here? John is writing this, this gospel at the end of his life, and he's looking back at the story. And basically, what he's telling us is when Jesus said that statement, that the rest of the disciples were looking at him saying, What are you talking about? What, what does it mean that, that if anyone thirsts, they can come to me and, and drink? What is he talking about? And John's telling us that later on in the story, it dawned on John that what Jesus was describing was the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the Holy Spirit was going to be active to, to create this thirst that drove us to Jesus. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so I want us to think about what John's saying here for a minute. One, he's saying that all who believed were going to receive the Spirit. He said it hadn't happened yet. While, while Jesus was on the earth, the people had not yet received his Holy Spirit, But he says the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not been crucified and resurrected. So there's some pretty deep theology in there uh, that that while Jesus is on the earth, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them uh, the way it was on the day of Pentecost. See, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes, and we're told that as believers now, the minute we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. But for the disciples, they didn't know that yet. They were still trying to figure out what, what was going on and why Jesus was saying the things that he said. See, we, we read this story and, and we know the way it ends. We, we read this story and we know kind of how this is going to play out. But you have to think through it in the mindset of the disciples. There were a couple things that for the disciples, they had no idea. They, they had no idea that this was what was coming. The first was the cross. And so you're going to see this over the next few chapters together. Jesus is going to keep talking more and more about the cross that's coming from, for him. And over and over again, the response of the disciples is, there's no way. There's no way that you could go to the cross. We're we're not going to let that happen. You see, to the Jewish listener, the Messiah was this Old Testament figure who was going to come and end sin, who was going to come and end suffering, who was going to come and defeat evil, and who was going to come and establish his reign over the kingdom of Israel. And so for the the people of Israel, they believed in the Messiah, but to them, the Messiah was going to be this incredible political ruler like King David was for him. He was going to come and they were going to cast out Rome who had, who had oppressed them and who had dominated them for years. And the Messiah was going to come along and be the king who was going to restore Israel and make things good again. And so Jesus comes along and he says, listen, I am the Messiah, but I'm not doing what you think I'm doing. I am the Messiah, but I didn't come for a throne. I came for a cross. And you can see that this tension just begins to build in, in the lives of of the disciples and in the lives of the listeners, how could the Messiah die? H- how could the Messiah be killed? How could the Messiah do these things that Jesus is talking about? So they began to struggle with this idea of a Messiah who would die. They struggled with that. They also struggled with the, the, this understanding of the Trinity. This understanding of the Trinity. For us, we've heard about the Trinity the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that there is one God and three persons. For them, this is very new information. This is something new to them. Uh, in fact, for the Jewish people, they prided themselves on be, being monotheistic. They looked around the world, and all the other religions of the world were very polytheistic, meaning many gods. Judaism stood alone in that we are monotheistic. We believe there is one God. And so you, you'll still hear it today if you go to Israel. Uh, I went about eight years ago. You'll still hear them quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's what made them distinct from all the other religions in the world is we have one God hero hero Israel the Lord God the Lord is is one so just imagine being a Jewish person who for all your life you have believed that there is one God then all of a sudden Jesus begins to walk the earth and he begins to tell you that he's the Messiah he begins to validate that claim through works and through signs and then all of a sudden he begins to say things like the father and I are one that if you've seen me you've seen the father He begins to to call God, they wouldn't even speak his name. He begins to call him Father, which they thought was incredibly irreverent. He he begins to say that, that me and the Father is one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He claims to be eternal and to be one with the Father. Jesus claims to be God. And so in the minds of the Jewish people, there's a ton of conflict because now they've always believed that there's one God. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is claiming there's somehow two. That there's the Father, and then there's, there's Him, and so there's tension in the Jewish mind. And then Jesus comes, and He lives His life, and He begins to talk about this third God. He begins to say things like this, like, there's a Spirit, and the Spirit is not a power or a force or a wind. This Spirit is me. This is the Spirit of the living God. And so now, again, imagine being a Jewish person. You've always believed there's one God, and then Jesus tells you, no, there's actually one God and two persons. And then towards the end of His life, He begins to say, listen, there's, there's another that there's a Holy Spirit that is also God. In a matter of years, the three years that Jesus is on the earth, as a, as a Jewish man, you have gone from monotheism, there's one God, to, to now somehow the Father is God and Jesus is also God, and now he's talking about this Holy Spirit who is also God. And so you can see for John, when he heard this, he's confused. He's trying to figure out how in the world does all this work? How is it that we're talking about this Spirit? Uh, I want you to flip over to John 16 really quickly. John 16, we're going to make it there eventually in our study of John, but I wanted just to highlight a few things tonight that, that, that explain what John's talking about. John begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, and as you turn from John 7 to John 16, what you just did was fast-forward the story to the night before the cross. To the, to the night before the cross, and the night before the cross, Jesus gathers with his disciples, and he begins to tell them what's about to happen to him even more, and he begins to talk a lot about this, this third God, the Holy Spirit. He begins to tell them some details that they hadn't heard before, and he begins to fill in the gaps that a lot of them had in their theology. He begins to, to tell them about this, this, this third person of the Trinity in the Holy Spirit. And I want to start reading John 16, uh, verse 7. If you read these chapters, he, he mentions the Holy Spirit a lot, but I'm, I've kind of narrowed it down to a few verses here. So imagine Jesus is talking the night before the cross with, with his followers. Pick it up in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. So, so the words here are almost somewhat comical. Jesus has just told them, hey, I know you've been with me for three years, and I know that you expected that I was going to build a kingdom on the earth, and you were going to get to reign with me, but I'm leaving. And so all the disciples are like, man, what in the world is he talking about? But he says, listen, I tell you the truth, it's actually for your advantage. Uh, if you're the disciples there, what are you thinking? He's just told us that he's leaving us, and it's for our good. This guy's crazy. He told us he's leaving us, and it's for his good. He says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, this is his job description, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So so let's just talk through that for a minute. The the night before the cross, Jesus is breaking the news again to his disciples, listen, I'm going to the cross and I'm leaving. I'm leaving you guys. These are guys who had dropped everything for three years to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, to to be where he was, believing he was going to be that king that the Old Testament talked about. And now he says, listen, I'm leaving you and it's it's actually for your good that I'm leaving you. And I, I imagine at that point they're looking around the room thinking, how in the world, Going to be for our good? How could Jesus leave us? You see, it's for their good for two reasons. One, because they had no idea that he had to die to save them. Th- they had no idea that, that Jesus had to go to the cross. They were trying to talk him out of it, and he said, Listen, you don't understand. Th- this has to happen. The only way a holy God can accept a sinful p- people is for the God man to go to the cross and change places with you. Th- this has to happen. But not only that, it's to their advantage because he tells them, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. This is actually for your good that I'm leaving Jesus Christ. I'm no longer going to be on the earth, but I'm going to send my spirit to the earth. And I want you to pay attention to the words that he says here. Uh, if I could spend the rest of my life studying one passage, it would be this passage. Because I think it's so rich and so meaningful. Look at what he says. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will what? He will convict what? the world. He will convict the world. See, Jesus, the night before the cross, is telling his followers, I'm going to send my spirit, and his job is going to be to convict the world. the, the world convict there means expose. That the Holy Spirit's job is to expose us. The Holy Spirit's job is to, to shine a light into the dark areas of our life that we don't want it shined. That this is what the Holy Spirit is sent for, that the Holy Spirit is to convict, to expose to, to, to make, make things come to light. And, and what does it say? To convict what? Some of you guys, the, the Holy Spirit will come and convict a few people. What does it say? The Holy Spirit will come convict the world. Pretty universal, right? And Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm leaving because my spirit isn't limited to one place and one time. Here's what my spirit's going to do. It's going to go out to the entire world. It's going to expose it. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. It's going to rip away places where people are trying to hide for their good. It's going to show people places in their their heart that are dark, that need to be brought to the light, not because I hate them, but because I I love them. And look what he says. He's going to convict the world concerning three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. And I I just want you to think about these tonight. I'm going to talk about them for a minute, and then we'll we'll get out of here. But he's going to convict the world concerning sin. So, So what is that? That the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus' promise, was going to be sent in the world to to each of us, and the Holy Spirit's job would be to convict the world concerning sin. See, I, I think this may be where some of the thoughts and the feelings that you've always wrestled with and haven't been able to be expressed now make sense. And what I mean by that is that when I think about the fact that Jesus promised me that the Holy Spirit would come into the world, and it would come into my life, and its job was to convict me concerning sin, my guilt all of a sudden makes sense. That, that it's not God who hates me, but it's actually God who loves me and says, Listen, I'm going to convict you and bring you back to myself. That the, my Holy Spirit's job is going to be to expose you and to show you that you're guilty. So, so, do you remember the first time you felt guilty? Do you remember that? As a little kid, I don't know what you did. Hopefully, it wasn't horrible. It's like a four year old or five year old. Uh, I remember the first time I felt guilty. My parents told me to not, that I, I asked for a cookie for dessert. I was like 4 or 5 or 12 or 18, I don't know. I, was, I, was, I asked for a cookie for dessert, and my parents told me no. And it was one of those really good cookies that are like the chocolate with the marshmallow stuff in the middle, and the, I don't know what they're called, but they're really good. And so my parents turned around, and I jacked a cookie and took off. And, and, and they, they never saw it. I was sneaky. I had big glasses, but I, have, I was sneaky. And so, and so I, I snuck off, and, and I hid behind the couch, and I remember just devouring that thing. And it, it was awesome. It was the greatest cookie ever. And then I remember finishing my cookie and just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I just felt this this terrible feeling. And I I can't explain it. But you guys know what I'm talking about, because you've been there. There's just this weight of of guilt that just flooded upon me. And then about five minutes later, my parents came out, and I had chocolate all over my face. So it didn't work very well. They busted me anyway. But I remember feeling really, really guilty. And here's what I was taught in school. That was just some kind of humanistic conditioning that happens to everybody that's just called conscience right everybody has that unless you believe the words of Christ who says listen I'm going to send my spirit into the world to convict the world concerning sin that this this guilt that you feel isn't random this is the work of a God who loves you trying to to woo you back to himself trying to expose you for your good saying listen come back to me that your guilt is to, to show you that there's something that's wrong that needs to be fixed in the same way that pain in your body shows you something's broken, you need to deal with it. So, so I'm going to convict the world concerning sin. Then he says I'm gonna conv- that, that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning righteousness. So, so what does that mean? That Jesus said, I'm going to send my spirit into the world, and his job is going to be to convict the world concerning righteousness. Uh, that, that word righteousness just means the quality of being morally right? the quality of being morally justifiable. And this is that, that thirst of the soul that I described, that, man, I just want to know that I'm okay. I just want to know that, that, that everything's going to be all right, that, that I'm a pretty good guy. And what this means is that the Holy Spirit will be at work to convince you that your goodness is not enough, that the God's Holy Spirit is inside you, letting you know that no matter how much you do and no matter how many times you go to church and no matter how many times you do the right things, that it's not enough. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you concerning judgment. That this is not a random human emotion. This is God inside you telling you, listen, you need something else. If your hope is your own righteousness, you're lost. If your hope is your own goodness, you're in trouble. And so I think you've probably felt that one too. You, you want to measure up. You want to be convinced that you're good enough. You, you want to think that everything's going to be okay. But deep down, you're just unsettled. Your soul is restless and you're not sure that you're okay. And I think most of us call this depression or emptiness, but, but Jesus calls this his spirit at work. That this deep emptiness of my soul is me hitting the walls of my righteousness that I'm, this is not enough. That, that I haven't done enough to ever make a holy God happy. And then he says the Holy Spirit will convict us concerning judgment. He will convict the world uh, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is to be judged. Uh, if you walk around campus tomorrow and ask people the question, what will happen at the end of your life, you're going to get a ton of different answers. But one that is pretty consistent is that we're somehow accountable to somebody for our lives. That there's this somehow uh, ingrained knowledge to us that at the end of my life, I, I feel like I'm somehow accountable for the good and the bad and all that I do. In fact, look at all the religious systems. All of them somehow account for at the end of our lives we're accountable. We have to answer to somebody. And again, is that, is that a random human emotion or is that what Jesus is talking about here? that I'm going to send my spirit into the world to, to convict, to, to expose you concerning your sin, concerning your righteousness, concerning your judgment, that, that Jesus came to show us that, that there's hope. And so, so to summarize all this, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And John, looking back on the story, says, listen, this is what I mean by that, 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 that Jesus was talking about this thirst that the Holy Spirit creates. And and this is what what I think is at the heart of this passage, that the Holy Spirit's job is to create a thirst in you that only Jesus can quench. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That The Holy Spirit's job is to create a thirst in you that only Jesus can quench. And so if you're here tonight and you're feeling that thirst, I want to tell you that the thirst is not the problem. That The thirst is universal. The thirst is something that each of us feel because we're broken and sinful and, and far from what we should be. But the thirst is actually God's gift to you. It's actually his spirit working inside you to bring you back to himself. And the Holy Spirit is creating this thirst in you, whether that be through guilt or whether that be through this emptiness or whether it be through just knowing that you're accountable and he's just saying, listen, come back to me. Come and drink. And, and all these needs are met in Christ. See, the Holy Spirit creates this thirst in us that only Jesus can quench. And, and I just want to read the end of John 7 here and show you how this played out. That there were a few responses to what to, to Jesus when he when he said these words, verse forty. It says when they heard these words, some of the people said, "This really is the prophet." Others said, "This is the Christ." See, for some of them, they heard this offer from Christ. Some believed in Jesus and drank deeply and had their, their thirst quenched by Jesus. That they had heard enough and they, they knew enough that they didn't understand everything, but they understood this man is claiming to be God. He's offering us life. He's offering us acceptance. He's offering us these things that we find nowhere else. Some of them believed and drank deeply and had their thirst quenched by Jesus, and I hope that that's some of you tonight. I hope that some of you tonight realize I'm thirsty. My soul is thirsty, and I don't know how to express it, but Jesus has come and he's offered me to quench my thirst and I don't have to understand everything, but I believe that Jesus is telling the truth, and, and I want to take him up on that offer and have my thirst quenched. It says that some believed in Jesus, and then some heard Jesus and questioned him. Look, look verse, the middle of verse 41. But some said, is is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David, and who comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, there were some who heard Jesus offer and, and believed in Jesus and drank deeply, and then there were some who heard Jesus but questioned him because he didn't fit into their theological and philosophical box. They said, we, we, we hear you, but we have a ton of questions, and that's some of you tonight, you're really struggling because Jesus isn't answering your questions, and, and he, has, he isn't acting the way you think he should act, and he's shattering some of the things that you think are right, and, and I get that. But if he's really God, if Jesus is really God, he doesn't have to answer all of our questions and he doesn't have to do things the way we like it. He's saying, listen, come and drink and, and, and I'm not answering all your questions. I'm going to offer this to, to you and invite you to me. And some of us just don't like that God doesn't have to answer to us. And then it says that some heard and hated him. Look at how this passage ends, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So so the Jerusalem police department sends out people to arrest him and they come back saying, man, this guy's good. He talks, he's really good. So the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, but this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. So, So there's this third group of people that just hate Jesus because he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to change. He's calling them to admit that they don't have it all figured out and they just, they just hate him. And so my question for you tonight is, which one of those is you? Which, which one of those crowds is you? Or are you the person who hears Jesus and you, you, you understand that he's offering something to you that although you don't understand every part of it you want, what he has to offer? That, that he's offered to quench my thirst. Maybe you're the person who has all these theological and philosophical boxes and because Jesus won't fit in, them, you walk away thirsty. Or, or maybe you just hate him because... He's telling you things to do that you don't like. You, you don't like the fact that if Christ really is God, he has authority in your life. See, I love verse 50, last three verses here. There's this man named Nicodemus. We've read about him before. Nicodemus is a Jewish official. He's one of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruler of the Jews. And look at Nicodemus. It says, Nicodemus, who had just gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, this guy Nicodemus, even though he was a Pharisee, although he was a ruler of the Jews, he decided that he was going to give Jesus a fair hearing. He's like, listen, I'm going to listen to the guy. I don't know who he is, and I don't know if what he's claiming is true, but does not every person deserve to at least be heard? And what I want to tell you tonight is that many of you have made your mind up about Jesus without giving him a fair hearing. You've decided about Jesus because you've had a few buddies who were Christians who were idiots. And because they were idiots, you decided that, that their Jesus wasn't worth following. You decided to not follow Jesus and not to, to look into this offering because you've been around churches that just burned you out. And I get that. That's a terrible reason to not look into what Jesus claimed to be and what he said. So my, my encouragement to you tonight, are you giving Jesus a fair hearing? Or are you listening to what he has to say? Have you dug into the Gospels and looked into his words on your own? That Jesus has claimed to be God and he's claimed to, to meet the, the deepest human need, that we are thirsty souls and he has the cure for it. So I, w- I want us to close tonight. The band's going to come up and play one last song. We're going to pray together and I just want to dwell on these words and I want to give you time with these words just to think and pray and maybe for some of you for the first time just say, listen, Jesus, I want to I drink. I, I want to come to you and I want to ask you to, to fill my soul, to accept me in places I've never been accepted before. To, to make me feel approval and, and security and, and worth and all these things that I've been looking other places for, I want to come to you tonight. See, if you're thirsty, come, let, let them come to me and drink. Have you come to Jesus and drink? And should you not at least give him a try? Sh- shouldn't you at least give Jesus the opportunity to be what he's claimed to be and to do what he's claimed to do? His offer is open. And maybe tonight's the night that you realize the Holy Spirit has been at work within you for a while now, creating this thirst. Maybe tonight's the night that you allow Jesus to quench your thirst.